Today, I am joined by the lovely Tara Ann Thiek. Uh, she is a homemaker and a writer, um, a wonderful Twitter poster. That's kind of how I found out about her work. Um, she um, writes, you know, tweets, speaks about a lot of um, things that are extremely uh, current and interesting to me about motherhood, about homemaking, about our relationship with technology, um, about embodiment, about pretty much, yeah, things that are acutely important in our relationship to the world. So uh, welcome, Tara. Thank you so much for having me, Alex. It's a privilege. I'm I'm very happy to uh, to to have you on, and uh, this has been uh, a long time coming because I've been following your your tweets and your articles for probably you know since I've yeah since I've been on Twitter probably about two or three years now. So um, yeah, always um, a very sensitive reader of of uh, a lot of the authors that I mentioned on the show. Um, so I think one of the things that we have in common now is that we're both pregnant. You're more acutely pregnant than I am, but we're both on the on the way of uh, having another child, and um, it's a it's a special time. And uh, it's I don't know. It makes me think about a lot about these questions that are floating out there about you know fertility and uh, you know we're everyone's below replacement. We're going everything's going to hell in a handbasket. But there's still people out there who are having children, like yourself. I mean. Um, I don't know. You're you're a, a mother of multiples. I don't know if you want to disclose how many children you have, but uh, you you have many. Um, and um, it's I don't know. It, it makes me think about essentially what what children mean. I mean, what, what? How do you think about children? I mean, what 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 are they? What should they ideally be? Because this is obviously a very contentious question now. For a lot of people, they are pretty much a status object if, you know, a, a desirable thing. You could see this a lot with, you know, surrogacy, especially now with a lot of kind of gay couples getting, uh, you know, hand luggage type children custom made in, in exotic locations and being sent sent back to the U.S. Um, you know, some people just see them as a a burden, which is not uncommon nowadays as well. I mean, what's what's your relationship to kind of the, the concept of children, the, rela- the reality of children? It's a wonderful question. And it's something I think about all the time. Um, I was very lucky to have a father, especially a father who loved children. He came from a huge family. And I grew up with the idea that children were people. They were people. They had feelings and wants and needs, and they were there to be heard and they became people. And when I started nannying uh, and working at daycares and preschools, I realized how many people don't see children as people. You, It's absolutely bizarre to me that you can encounter these child-free forums, people who are proudly child-free, who seem to think that they're a separate species rather than a phase of life that we've all been through, which is it's shocking. It's dismaying. Um, and from there, the people who go on to have children who are, who are interested in children seem to treat them not as people, but as a status object, as you said, as a blank slate, sort of as a creature that doesn't exist 
and doesn't have its own needs. So you can have surrogacy where the baby is ripped away from the mother immediately because the child doesn't have any needs of its own, only the parents do. You can put a child into daycare at three weeks, six weeks with a bunch of strangers, and the child's body doesn't have its own needs. It doesn't have its own recognized responses to the world around it. It's as if children as people have been completely disregarded and turned into just something that we project onto, whether it's something that we hate about ourselves, something that's a burden and we we want it removed, or something that is there to surface us in some sort of way. It's it's very very disturbing realization that I've had over the years. And at first it was a minor observation. And now you see surrogacy celebrated every week in the news. Yeah. I mean, it's, it, I think it's, it's also tied into um, people just not having the experience of being with children. A lot of people don't have siblings. I mean, I'm the only child of only children. You know, I've, held a baby coincidentally a few weeks before I gave birth to my own. It was a nice experience. I was like, okay, I made the right decision <laughs> trying to have this baby. Yeah, def- definitely didn't, you know, nannying, things like that. We're just not in the in the conceptual universe that I grew up in. Um, children were something that happened to other people somewhere far away and you saw them on television and they were kind of these exotic creatures. Obviously, this is my experience is not, you know, probably people are on a spectrum to how much contact they have with children. But I think the the frequency and intensity of spending time with children, other people's children, uh, people in the community and things like that have has gone down drastically. So, um, you know, seeing children as anything except for what they're portrayed as in the media, because that's how we get our view of the world nowadays, is really hard because you just, you just don't, you don't know until you try and trying itself is, you know, con- conditional upon you having a you know a positive idea about what it's going to be like so it's a bit of a a bit of a negative spiral with all of these ideas um yeah i mean it's 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 sad that that's you know that's and i i know a lot of people who i grew up with which are pretty much in the same situation i mean maybe they were single children maybe had a sibling but yeah it didn't really influence them that much and then you know unsurprisingly a lot of those people are childless now and um, yeah, they've they've taken a completely different route. So, um, yeah, I mean, what do, what do you make of the fact that that people just don't see children in their day to day lives? You know, I again, I I grew up with going to my grandparents' house for holidays, and I was at that point half my cousins were a lot older, and I was sort of in the middle. And then there was a, a much younger segment, but the idea was that Christmas was for kids, and there were just tons of children around. And it was a part of life, not something sort of cordoned off. I'm only one of two. And almost everybody I grew up with in, you know, the sort of wealthy suburbs of DC was one of two. And that I've noticed that in a lot of those families, the children I grew up with, nobody had kids or people had one child. And I think my experience growing up with holding my little cousins, you know, when they were born, shifted my ideas of, okay, this is a part of life. And I would think this, we've had this enormous transformation and nobody's talking about it. But for so many people, they had no experience of what I, what I, what I was relating to. And 
again, getting into my 20s, I was fascinated by how children just played no part in the life cycle of the urban credentialed progressives mind. They, they didn't think about them. It was something they would think about when they turned 35. If you worked with kids, that's like not real work. <laughs> you know, People think that's incredibly boring, that all children need is to be distracted. And all of that just sort of builds into this cycle where children, children, of all things, children, you know, young, most societies have been young, sort of vanish. They sort of vanish from the mental landscape of people. There was that, that I think it was just a tweet a few weeks ago from a woman who said exactly what you said, like I hadn't held a baby before I was born. I mean, before I gave birth to my own baby. And that's just a shock. That's a shocking experience that people can go all through school and learn so many things that are irrelevant to their day-to-day lives and not learn these basic relational skills. They're not getting them from anywhere. They're told they're unimportant or that they're pick it up in a second. And then you have all these parents who then have children and are completely stressed out. <laughs> they're, they're exhausted. They have no idea what they're doing. They're angry at their kids. And that leads them to want less kids. And they're, you know, you go to the playground and a parent says, oh, I can barely deal with my one. You know, I'm never having more. And your child can hear you. You know how horrible it is. And they just keep vanishing. I keep thinking when I go out in public, how few other pregnant women I see. You know, this is for most of human life. People have been around women who are pregnant or nursing. And that's that's not something a huge swath of society is experiencing anymore, particularly the influencer class. You know, most of our, our global leaders don't have kids. You know, our journalist pundits don't have kids. And it's this part of existence being removed from before our eyes. Yes. And it's it's also, you can see that it's, there, there are a lot of trade-offs here. Like, uh, obviously there are mommy influencers, but it's it's a tough gig in the sense that if you actually do have, you know, the five, six, seven children, it's it becomes a bit hard to, you know, be be as polished as needed to present yourself on, on the internet and, and oh, not yeah. be you know, oh, yeah. <laughs> laughed out of the room. Um, so I think it's, it's tough because every impulse that we're supposed to have nowadays for self-promotion, for, you know, extracting as much experience out of our lives and as much money out of the economy as we can, um, they're all trading off against the fact that, you know, children really do need a lot of time it really is hard. There really are sacrifices. And I personally don't don't know how to frame this in a positive way for people because, you know, anything you put out on the internet, people kind of have this utilitarian lens over it, you know, almost like a um, pros and cons list going on in their head all the time. And I don't really want to um, talk about mother the, the, the hardships that come with motherhood because you know I I probably have never done anything as hard in my life which maybe says more about <laughs> ease of my life up to this point but uh, it it really has been tough physically you know I've, I started late and it's been it's been quite a you know emergency C sections all sorts of recovery time you know my hair fell out you know oh, just yeah. stuff that's just you know never you you didn't think about but you know you had to go through I mean. It's it's a minor thing now, but you know, compared to, you know, the fact that 
you know, I, I didn't have to do these things, you know, and I, I opted for them, obviously, in my role as mother. Um, you know, it's, it's hard to talk about them because there are negatives, but at the same time, it's, it's, you know, it's, it's the thing to do. It really, I can't really talk about it in any other way than this is the purpose of my life. And I don't even need like an ideological layer on top of this to, um, for this to be self-evident. You know, once you have the child, it's very clear <laughs> that this was exactly what you needed to do. It's perfectly wonderful. It's very hard. But then when I put this, if, you, if I write an essay about this, people will scan it for the, you know, the, oh, I don't know. Yeah, there's too much poop. No, no, no. The, oh, it's sleepless nights. No, no, no. I can't, I can't put, <laughs> put it all on the cons list. So it's, it's very hard to communicate the experience of being a mother without uh, putting people off. You know, the honesty is, is hard. It's, you're absolutely right that it is something you don't want to complain about because we've made being a mother a choice. And so if you say that, well, now these things are hard, they're like, well, you, you chose that. You know, you chose to do this to yourself. And you think, well, that's not, first of all, that's not the whole story. <laughs> like, There's all the other things that come with it. I mean, everything worthwhile in life is hard. And motherhood has all the hard things you mentioned, <laughs> all you mentioned. And there are the things you miss out on, which is that we have this peer culture of being out, consuming, experiencing, partaking in all these things. And now all of a sudden, you really, if you're going to be a present, you can't. And at first, that is a hard transition. And especially, I think, with your first kid, it is kind of overwhelming to to realize that you can't go do all those things, that you can't just be on the go with everyone else. Um, no matter how much you know, it's going to come as a shock. And then the other stuff starts. It's like soil. It's like gardening. You garden and you see nothing happening. And then it all starts to happen. And you know, every time you look at your child's face, especially as they grow, it's there's nothing like that. You know, one, I like to start our day no matter what with I sit in the chair I'm sitting in now and I get up before everybody and the children one by one come in to say good morning. And you know, I just we I hold them and we talk and it's not busy time. And it's so much more meaningful to me than any concert I ever went to, any trip I ever took. It's this this love that develops from being a baby to being a, a child who has these thoughts and dreams. And with them, you're rediscovering the world. I mean, being a parent is an opportunity to redo all the things you loved as a kid and which so many people are trying to hold on to as if they're still children. But this time you're entering into it in a new way. You're creating these experiences. You know, cre the, the magic of Christmas is not just being 28 years old and finding Mr. Right in a Hallmark movie, but it's letting your child enter into the seasons and letting them enter into the mystery of the birth of Christ. Like all of these things take on new life in a way that I, I don't think it, it did for me until I had children. I, I think of my long twenties as a period of sort of Sad, the way I hear so many people describe it, the sadness, this anxiety. And once motherhood and parenthood take over, if you are able to make it a gift, if you're able to accept the losses, 
you get so much more back, so much more than you could imagine. I I can't imagine having. I don't. I don't want to celebrate. It's to so much for the people who are longing to have children and can't. But it is. It is an incredible gift. Yes, I, I completely. I, I love the way you put it. It's um, it's a complete shift in in just the way I exist in the world. Um, and yeah, I mean the the long twenties. You know, yes, I, I I echo that. I mean, there was this. You know, I the the, the only metaphor I, I keep using for this was that I was just like dancing on the edge of the abyss. You know, just like. <laughs> Oh, yes. Glancing in and being like, well, you know, I'll probably, you know, survive this somehow, but I don't really have a plan. And mm-hmm. yeah, it's just, um, you know, a lot of anxiety, a lot of uh, kind of internal turmoil, disorientation about, you know, what's my purpose? What should I do? You know, just playing whatever game was in front of me and seemed reasonably high status uh, with the people that happened to be there. Um, yeah, I mean, it's, it is a completely, complete phase shift once you, once you have children, um, because in a way, um, I mean, this, this is going to sound selfish, but it's like, it's the idea that, you know, this, it takes away the burden of the self in a way. It's almost like a kind of a, a, a Buddhist, you know, Zen experience where, um, the, the locus of importance in the world suddenly shifts from, from yourself to, other person who is you know part of yourself and part of your kind of your extended universe but um it's it's someone else and it's it's beautiful it's very hard to care so much for for something outside of yourself but it's it's a relief and i feel like a lot of people don't realize how much of, of a beautiful thing even that is to just be okay it's you know all of the stuff that i was concerned about up until this point is really unimportant now I'm concerned about many more things, you know, like is the child breathing, um, <laughs> all, all sorts of little things like what's this rash? Uh, but yeah, there's all sorts of little things that you're concerned about. But, you know, like the pressure of, I don't know, the existential abyss and anime of, of modern condition, less so, much less so when you have to deal with, you know, the, the day-to-day, um, you know, issues, anxieties of being a mom. And I would take these over the old ones any day. It's just, I I don't know if you've had the same experience. I've, I've heard a lot of people say this, um, but they, the idea that before you had kids, you felt like you never had any time to be productive. And then once you have children, you find all of a sudden when you have less time than ever, that you're so much more productive. Like I, I, it's amazing how it, it forces you to get in rhythm with the world in a way that you maybe didn't have to before because you, you know, living a life of consumption and sort of treading water. And now, okay, my child needs to be on a schedule. They need to get up. They get up when the sun comes up, they go to sleep at this time. And now once you're on that kind of schedule and that routine, that into the rhythm of existence, all of a sudden possibilities open up that weren't there before. You just couldn't make the time with your own willpower. But once you're harmonizing <laughs> with others, all of this sort of comes into possible. Like I, I read, I don't want to say I read more, but I do, I get up early. I have a lot more time for study. Um, I do more, far more writing than I did before I had children. 
I learned, I learned how to knit and how to crochet and do all, <laughs> I cook much better, all these different things. I'm not saying it happens the first year, <laughs> but it can happen. I don't know. Did that happen? Has that happened to you? Yes. Yes, definitely. I mean, uh, the, the, like I said, the level of disorientation and just, you know, haphazardness that I had before when there was no external standard measuring me except for, I guess, you know, <laughs> A performance review every six months or so, which I could kind of coast through by by improvising. Uh, but um, yeah, it's 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 a completely different different thing, and um, it just yeah, it it structures your time. And I think it's just another example of you know, if you want something done, give it to a busy person. <laughs> There's no one busier than someone with uh, yeah with kids. So yeah, it's it, it definitely definitely works. Um, yeah, but I'm still definitely in the adjustment period. I'm not saying, I wouldn't say that I'm like ex- explosively more productive, but I am more productive. That's for sure. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Hopefully um, after two. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, it's, um, it, it is interesting. Obviously, I'm a little bit, you know, not not scared or anything, but I'm apprehensive of how, you know, my first child will react to the second child because he's, he's a, just a, you know, I, I call him like a Nietzschean blonde beast type child. He's like a whirlwind. Um, oh, he sounds just like my youngest. <laughs> really? Like blonde whirlwind. Yeah, he's he doesn't know how to walk. He started running and he just runs. The second he gets up in the morning, he's just running from one corner. He's just like bouncing off hard objects all the time. You kind of have to watch him. It's like a pinball in the house. Yeah. You know, everything's covered in foam <laughs> so that he doesn't break something. He's always covered in mystery bruises. Oh, yeah. Yeah, just, <laughs> I don't know. That's just his personality. I didn't do anything to cause this. <laughs> I've always been very gentle and mild with him, but, you know, no, we it's just have- the way it is. <laughs> three girls and we didn't need baby gates. And then when we had the boy, we had, a, like, it was not, he was on the table, standing on the table every five minutes, throwing things down. I was like, okay, this is different. Yes. That's what, that's what I heard as well. You know, um, it's very hard to give advice if you, if you don't have multiple children, if you don't have, you know, at least one of, one of each. Um, yeah. It's, you know, because people kind of, tell me about it, you know, how to, you know, calm a toddler. And I see people with their toddlers in restaurants. I'm just imagining like, it's no universe in which this is, would be possible for us. <laughs> it's just, <laughs> I would need some sort of like cage or something to, yeah, okay. to, to secure him or yeah, it's harnesses. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's just, I mean, it's just the way it is. You know, we just, we, you make it work. Um, we've made our house a completely, you know, baby proofed, you know, even the ceilings are baby proofed just in case. So yeah, it's, it's, it's all safe for him here, but yeah, you know, we'll see. I mean, my second baby is also going to be a boy. So yeah, (laughs) we'll, we'll see how it goes. But we're expecting a boy right now as well. And I'm excited because I I love the dynamic between the sisters and, um, I, I nannied for a few years with just boys and I thought that I thought it was special. <laughs> so I'm hoping that the two of them channel their energy and hopefully you'll have that too. Though there's that period of hoping that the older boy doesn't accidentally destroy <laughs> the younger child. Oh God, yeah. <laughs> destroy is putting it very euphemistically. <laughs> hopefully nothing bad happens. I mean, he's a he's very friendly. 
Uh, we have two cats and he constantly, obviously he doesn't know how to pat them gently and stuff like that. He just keeps running after them, yelling meow at max oh. volume, <laughs> like trying to stro- stroke them slash pull their tails and feeding them apple chunks and giving them, you know, oh. his little <laughs> toys because, you know, he just wants to relate to them and communicate. But yeah, he's, he's a, a very friendly, uh, energetic child. So I hope that translates into being friendly to, to, the, new, uh, to the new child as well. <laughs> I hope so too. Uh, yeah, I mean, we'll we'll see. We'll see what happens. You won't, you know, you can't know until until you meet this new person who is it's you know his own person, like you, like you, uh, very well, very well said. Um, there is um another thing that I, I, I mentioned. You, this is an article that doesn't is not about this particular paragraph, but I think it's a very beautiful way of expressing something that I've noticed in my own life, especially now that I had children. Uh, so I'm just going to quote from from an article. Um, uh, that is the end game of the marriage of capitalism and technocracy. A modular, manageable people willing to consume with no endpoint, no fast, no feast, stripped of particulars. And that kind of, you know, it hit me a little bit because I I feel that and I felt that a lot while I was, you know, working abroad and living in my little, you know, concrete cubicle type apartment and every day was kind of optimized. You know, I had my little morning routine with my little oat whatever thingy and um but you know no fasts no feasts except for you know intermittent fasting if i needed it um it was all very um utilitarian and uh gray you know there was no 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 ritual at all to to my life except for you know the occasional i don't know fad diet or things that i was uh, that was interested in in uh, the moment and it was completely disconnected from the wider world um, I don't know, birthday parties. I guess that's that's what was left. And <laughs> maybe something related to Christmas, but that was not necessarily always the case. So now I see this um, as me trying to reignite the fire of, of ritual and and bring it back into into our family now that we have children and expecting more children. Um, and cause I, I used to, we used to have, you know, little things that, you know, even like the Easter bunny was a big thing in our family, you know, not necessarily very religious, but, um, there were all sorts of little, little things that we used to do. And I feel like, yeah, it's time to, to reignite a lot of them. I mean, how, how do you see, um, rituals and, and, and this sort of event in your family? There's a line I came across only, only a few months ago that I've, surprised I hadn't come across it earlier from Rudolf Steiner, where he says, rhythm builds strength, rhythm builds strength and it overcomes strength. It's, it's stronger than just being strong. It's entering into something deeply. And that is one of the most important things we can do as parents. And if you're not a parent, it's just one of the most important things you can do in general. We're we're living through a moment of mental crisis, of identity crisis. We don't, we can't say what it is to be a woman. We we don't really even know what it is to be a human. And we live in this twenty four seven digital time, which is no time, no place, all things at once, and it's having an acute psychic impact on people. Um, I don't think we 
even begin to understand how profound the revolution has been in our consciousness, even over the past few decades. <laughs> you know, it's we've had a lot of changes over a hundred years and two hundred years, but since the smartphone, I don't think any of us can fully appreciate how profound these changes are. Um, so one of the first things we did as parents was wanting to build up these rituals and a sense of rhythm. And I, I was converting to Catholicism at the time. So that's sort of a good place to start. <laughs> you know, there's a whole, whole world of feasts there. But as many people have pointed out, you can feel like you're LARPing. These aren't your organic traditions. You're having to make them up on the, on the go and decide what works. And I've thought about it. And all I can sort of say is, okay, congratulations to the LARPers. You know, like this all may feel inauthentic at first, but it will take on meaning of its own. My, for my kids, the things that we do feel like they think we've always had it this way. <laughs> we have a Jesse tree at Christmas. I never had anything like that growing up. Um, we weren't a Christian family. And you know, we read the Bible story with each little ornament. And that's something that they love. They look forward to it so much. And we try to do little things for other little feast days, um, like Michaelmas or uh, Candlemas, which Feb February 2nd, we light a bunch of candles in the house. Um, Twelfth night, we go out and we pour uh, a little bit of apple juice on the apple tree. You know, it feels so silly to me and my husband. It's not a, tra it's not a tradition that our peers are participating in. It can feel, it can feel false, and yet the children love it so much, and we enjoy it. It's fun. Um, so we're trying to plant the seeds of rhythm and ritual, even when it feels so strange in a world which is breaking down time. It's just breaking it down everywhere. But when you see how we benefit from it and how your children benefit from it, there's no argument to be made. This is trying to bring your children, your family, your home into harmony with nature, with, um, with your church, with whatever belief system you profess is one of the most important things we can do when there is an active attack on doing that. This is what it means to be human in the world is to have limits, to have different times for different things. And if people want to protect being human, this is I mean, ground zero. This is where you start. Yes. I think that's that's a, a beautiful way of putting it. And I'm also on the on the LARP until you make it train. <laughs> I mean, you know, just just thinking about you know the the way I grew up and the way a lot of people that I know grew up, there's no anchor. There is nothing. If you don't build it, um, you know, it's it literally is just, you know, hanging out on the edge of the abyss. Um, because the structure is the one that you have to you have to make for yourself. Um it's yeah, it's it's unfortunate, but yeah, I mean, it's you know, LARPing might be cringe, but it's <laughs> if it's the only thing you got, <laughs> I mean, it's 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 great, and I think that's that's really beautiful. Um, yeah, I mean, that's that's the thing. I think we we've just gone over the the hill that was you know the first year with the new baby, first child, 
Um, now we're, uh, you know, he's a year and a half old and we've kind of gotten into the rhythm of things. And now we, we think we can expand to doing other things than just surviving. And I think, you know, <laughs> introducing more, you know, more optional things like, like rituals into our uh, Groundhog Day-like existence is, is something that's <laughs> definitely on the, on the table. And I, I really want to do it. Um, but that's really, that is, that's, that's really beautiful. Um, I'll have to, you know, and in our family, it's a bit interesting because my, my husband, I mean, I'm, I'm more interested in religion though. I I've been a more of an, even a deeper atheist than, than, than most people back in the day, but he's kind of very cafeteria about it. So I kind of have to lead the charge and say, okay, today is day of, you know, St. Barbara, we need to do this and that. So, <laughs> uh, yeah, I think this is not an, an untraditional uh, role of women to be, to be leading the charge in the spiritual and, uh, and cultural development of the family. Um, I wonder what's, what's the dynamic uh, like in your house? Are you, you guys, you know, completely agree or you're consolidated on how things should, should go? It's, it's similar to what you describe, but um, you know, my husband's not Catholic. Uh, he was probably an atheist when I met him. We were friends for years before we started dating. Um, I'm, I'm a pain in the neck. <laughs> so he, <laughs> over the years, he, he listened and listened and became more and more sympathetic. I would say he's very, he's almost like a true agnostic. And his agnosticism is so loving that it's made him very sympathetic to Christianity. I don't see him converting, but you know, when I told him over the years that um, a father praying with their child is a better indicator of a child staying with their faith than the mother, it's strange, but it's something I'd read. He took that to heart. I didn't mean that as you need to, but he does nightly prayers with the children. Um, he doesn't worry about missing mass. That's not, <laughs> it's not what, what he worries about whatsoever, but he's been lovely about picking out books to read with the children and encouraging it. And he does it all because he wants to. I, I think it's important not to, not to push him. I have no, no, no plans to convert him, but um, as he comes to things on his own, he brings a different angle than I do, which I'm grateful for. I don't want to, I don't want to treat my children like little projects that I'm lumping, like I'm creating them. And so my husband having a different take, but still aligned, you know, with me in some ways is kind of the best of all worlds. So the kids are getting multiple perspectives. And if I go too far this way, then he steers them a little bit this way. And I, I think that's the ideal of a good partnership, but um, I know not everybody has that. So I feel very lucky that we're able to make that work. Yeah, I think that that complementarity was also what I was looking for when I, you know, was yeah, wanting to to get married and wanting to find someone who would um yeah, would would fill that role and um it's a completely different perspective to what I had when I was I don't know, 17 and just like fresh to the world <laughs> and being like, okay, oh, you're a death metal drummer. Okay, that's sounds exactly like what I need. <laughs> so, yeah, it's um it is. It, it's one of those things because obviously a lot of people in, in our circles, in my circle at least, are very kind of okay. You should get married young. You should you know be having children young. And I think practically yes, but given the fact that you know just the the, the cultural and moral void that I 
you know, rose up from. <laughs> it took me a while to bootstrap myself to overcome all of that, to even have the the capacity to actually be able to date someone who's not, you know, not going to, you know, end in, in divorce six months later. Um, it, it just, it took me a while to, to realize, okay, what, what's important? What kind of person am I? What kind of, what kind of life do I want to make? What can I give to this other person? What can I bring to a complementary relationship? You know, what does a good father look like? You know, things that didn't really cross my mind <laughs> earlier in my life and seem that important. Uh, but yeah, I mean, it's, um, it, it is hard to square that, you know, because ideally, obviously, if I wanted to have, you know, the 10, 10, you know, the area of 10 children, uh, yeah, it's not going to happen. Uh, but yeah, it's, 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 it's hard to give people advice in this sphere because you don't know where you find them, what headspace you're exactly. in. You just, yeah, tell them, yeah, you know, get married at 22. It'll solve all your problems. Oh, Might yeah. not. <laughs> it's, I, I'm, very sympathetic to people who are making the critique of how frustratingly awful our modern society is, but that doesn't change the fact that people are still growing up without certain tools and skill sets and they need to be met where they are. <laughs> it's, I know that's a cliche. I know it's being used in the wrong way. That doesn't make it not have a profound point. You know, this moral and cultural void you're talking about is real. There's um, a child rearing book I bought years ago, and I just kind of bought it off the cuff. I don't, I don't know why I bought it. It's called The Incarnating Child by Joan Salter. I believe it's Joan Salter. And in the beginning, she talks about how you know our grandmothers or great grandmothers raised our kids without having to think about any of this, and now we do. And we live in a world where the professional managerial class demonizes our grandfather, like demonizes their lives as being horrible, suffering, everything's terrible. And when you find out that's not true, there's an impulse to go back. But we can't go back to that world because our grandmothers really weren't choosing much. Our grandfathers weren't. They they had their vocations, their communities sort of planned out already. They lived in an integral community where all of these things were given. They didn't have to make choices. And you and I and everyone out there now has to make a choice. And that is seems unfair. <laughs> it's very frustrating. I like, I, I love the line from um, J.R.R. Tolkien, what punishment of God, what punishments of God are not gifts. That's not a, you know, it sounds like a trite line, but you know, this was a man who was orphaned young, lost all of his friends in the Great War. And when he says what punishments of God are not a gift, I I do hear that. And so all these things that are an incredible burden and so frustrating, hopefully they do become a gift in the end. You know, you live through the, the void. And you get the chance to choose these skills and choose to do the things your grandmother did. And some of them you won't choose, but you enter into a very different relationship with them where you can have gratitude and not bitterness, the sort of the bitterness that consumes the careerist class. You know, we get to leave that behind. And that's, that's a gift in a lot of ways. 
Yes, that's that's very beautifully put. Um, yeah, you you kind of have to overcome that because you know you, we're talking about the the frustrated mommy influencer. I feel like the the main characteristic there is that that clinging to a life that is never going to come back, and you just have to accept the the transformation that you've signed on to and, and see it as a transformation and as a gift, as a blessing, as something that you know. It's also I feel like people are very much tied into. Uh, their youth, because that's also kind of um, a commodity. It's you know, it's precious. Obviously, you can leverage it for all sorts of things. You know, from from <laughs> money to status to travel to all sorts of things. Um, and losing it is painful, especially for people who you know have a lot of ego tied into it. And moving on to a different season of life is also very painful, especially for people who are very invested in, in one particular season. Um, <laughs> And yeah, I feel like that's, we really have lost the cultural tools to to deal with that. I mean, you look at, you know, abominations, like whatever Madonna parading her new face around, you know, de- debuting her new face and things like that. And, you know, whatever you think about Madonna, she is a cultural icon and she's, you know, she's been prolific in music and all this type of stuff, you know, good on her. But she's obviously clinging to something that's never going to come back and it, it results in, really grotesque, like almost demonic <laughs> presentations in, in, in real life. And yeah, I mean, it's it's very hard for a lot of people, even that I know in my real life, to let go of a certain part of, um, of their lives. I, I had this experience and I, maybe it's because I was born a curmudgeon, <laughs> but um, in my 20s looking around and thinking, how are any of these people going to be good grandparents? Are they going to be happy when they're older? And I felt, you know, exquisitely blessed by my father's parents. You know, I would go to their house and I felt a sense of peace and home, home, being home, that um, I can't, I can't really recover anywhere else. It was enchanting. And my husband and I talk about all the time how we're we're trying to be the kind of we're trying to grow into grandparents. You know, we're trying to grow into the kind of people who are able to give and satisfied by the world and can laugh at the world. You know, just all these little things and being, as you said earlier, being anchor for people. And it's profoundly disturbing to see how many people are struggling. My, my earlier observation wasn't entirely incorrect. They are struggling to move into the next season of life. And there are so, so many reasons for that. Um, you know, people, we can blame capitalism. We can blame, uh, you know, technocracy. We can blame, you know, the fetishization of youth, advertising culture, diminishing women. I mean, all of those have some truth for why Madonna shows up looking like that but it's it's happening and it's surreal and there are just going to be so many children growing up without the the anchor that I had which you know probably saved my life (laughs) saved me from that void was I saw that it is possible to grow old beautifully and lovingly and there is nothing wrong with that I I remember watching a movie years ago with Patricia Clarkson and just how beautiful she was like in her, in her sixties and just thinking that it's possible. 
you can grow old and have it be a new beauty. Your face takes on all these new lines and you look, you look like you have wisdom and warmth to give people and not just sexual availability, but in a culture which doesn't really value anything except sex, you know, even if they're not having it, they that's what they value. And people are going to cling to that so much that they can't let go and they have nothing else. They haven't built anything else in the intervening years. Yeah. I think it's, it's also the fact that we have this idea that um, because technology, you know, you could, you could record progress in technology. You can see that, you know, today's cars are, you know, 5% more comfortable than last year's cars. It feels like there's a certain progression that's really, really rapid. And, um, you know, the people who are actually native and, and this, all this new technology are young people. They know all about this, you know, the whiz kids and um, they're, they're plugged into all of this. And this is the only thing that matters, obviously, because this is what we're plugged into. Um, and it does feel like the wisdom of old is not that important. And I have to say the, the last few generations, I have to say it's, it's, it's hard to pick out the wisdom. I mean, you know, obviously the, the case of your, your grandparents seems, seems, you know, lovely, but a lot of people of that generation, unfortunately, um, don't necessarily have the, the wisdom to share. I mean, you know, the, the stories I hear from even, even people who've kind of taken the route that we're on, um, they're building families. There's a lot of reticence. There's a lot of pushback. You know, people don't really, you know, they want to enjoy their retirement. You know, the, you know, grandchildren are often seen as a burden. Obviously, this is not that, you know, not, I'm not generalizing saying that a lot of, you know, most people are like that, but quite a lot of people are like that. Um, um, especially people parents of people who are almost like reactionaries now, like almost like, you know, like, like myself, uh, I've, I've had to, you know, rediscover this and, and see, um, see the value in, in a lot of these, uh, a lot of kind of these traditional ways or, you know, this timeless, uh, timeless wisdom, uh, because I didn't have the, the, that wasn't my reality. I didn't really have these role models. Um, so I think, you know, it, it is the case that a lot of times the, the grandparents uh, in, in, you know, situations, I mean, my parents, unfortunately, are both deceased. My grandparents also died when I was very young. I don't really have anyone uh, in my life for that. Uh, but, um, you know, people that I know who are kind of on the same path, they, you know, they have kind of the, the tip stereotypical boomer, <laughs> boomer parents. And um, yeah, it's hard to see, you know, they're pretty much the first generation who didn't graduate to, you know, become the, the matriarchs and crones and, you know, um, patriarchs and, and people who can, who can, you know, be village elders and something. They've kind of crystallized into, into a bit of a extended adolescence. And yeah, it's, you know, it's hard to see, to, to do something that you can't see in, in the world around you. It's, it's a, uh... I'm glad you said boomer before I did. <laughs> I'm sorry. I have a, I have a handful of people who are from the boomer generation oh, listening no, to this, no. sometimes commenting that I'm being mean. You know what I mean. I don't mean you. I'm sure you're lovely. <laughs> I'm always so trepidatious about talking about generations and things like that. And when I go to my um, daughter's school, you know, there are a number of grandparents who are obviously boomers, and they pick up their children, and they are the primary watchers in their, in their grandkids' lives. And it's amazing, but my, my, the experience, experiences I'm familiar with from myself and with many others is not that way at all. 
Um, my that's right. My grandparents felt like the end of an era, but the new era is of especially I think for people who came of age post 1968. That's sort of a division that I've drawn in my head. They had much smaller families. Um, they see children as something to be outsourced immediately. You know, there's second wave feminism, careerism. If your daughter is a homemaker, that's, ooh, that's embarrassing. Um, <laughs> you know, it's, they don't see themselves as being uncool. Um, you know, that's not something they're into. They, I, I don't want to rag on them too. <laughs> I don't want to rag on them too much, but I think there's going to be repercussions for a bunch of children who don't have that role model in their lives, as you were saying, you didn't. And I'm worried about that. (laughs) My goal is to become that kind of grandparent. And I see a lot of people grappling with this saying, I mean, I don't know if you're familiar with um, Rizoma, but she's like, that's what I want to be. I want to be this kind of grandmother. I'm like, that's your thinking long-term. That's exactly the boomers didn't and a lot of their children aren't. And that's going to be a really big problem. Um, Again, no knock on all the people who are very much present, but we're definitely talking about a wide group of people who are not doing those things. And many of them wield more power than those sort of rural grandparents who are showing up. These are people with a more prominent platform, usually more money, and they're sort of setting the trend in ARP and things like that of having their extended permanent adolescence. Yeah, I think, you know, a lot of boomers kind of uh, kind of talk, fight back with the fact that, you know, the millennials are worse. And I, I agree, <laughs> they, they are worse. But I think what, what people have noticed, and, you know, I'm not the first one. I mean, there's a whole book by, by Helen Andrews, very worthwhile to read called Boomers, not necessarily about the generation, but about a few luminaries that are part of the boomer generation and we're very influential in our, in our culture. And I think it's, um, now I, I'm drawing a blank, but it was Steve Jobs, Sonia Sotomayor, um, Jeffrey Sachs, economist, you know, all sorts of extremely influential and powerful people uh, who who changed the, the, the course of, of the last decades in their field into a direction that, this podcast, especially the guests I have on, are not too happy about. So um, that's I recommend it. It's really good. It's not offensive, even if you are a part of that generation. You'll see why. Um, you know, it it, it really was a, a, an earthquake um, in terms of what happened. Obviously, you know who who is to blame? What was causal? Who made these decisions? I don't think you know you can actually blame it on individuals. You know, it's a, it's a product of their time. I mean, just the, the the technological possibilities. I mean, the pill, the pill itself is just a complete, you know, civilizational disruption device. And there were another like five or six technologies similar to that happening at the same time, including the internet. So, you know, there there were reasons, obviously, for for the you know big civilizational shift that we saw. Um, but at the same time, it was the first generation where this was this happened at at that scale. So. That's why we talk about the boomers. So don't 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 mind us, boomers. Um, I uh, I also wanted to talk to you about um, collectives and kind of the idea of um, 
of you know how how to raise your your child because there's this um, this book kind of hold hold on to your kids and I remember people oh. were mentioning it. Um, I haven't read it yet, and I kind of know the the gist of it, but I think it's it's really interesting because my instinct because I grew up pretty much kind of a lone wolf. I didn't really I was always around adults. You know, I feel like I've I'm okay. I'm well rounded. Don't really have big problems, uh, but. You know, I, I've always thought, okay, you know, this has been a big loss in my life. It's been a, an issue. I need to socialize my child, push him into groups of kids as soon as possible so that he's, you know, not weird <laughs> or whatever. Uh, but, you know, it might be that my my newfound uh, idea is not, is not that good because essentially, the, as far as I know, is the, um, the point of holding on to your kids is that, um, you know, socialization with adults is more important while the children are small. Uh, because it, it forms a more secure attachment and it doesn't really um, let them get infected by a lot of, you know, issues that come from from children's peer pressure, which, you know, you could see this with teenagers quite a lot, but even with smaller children, it's um, it, it can be a little bit dangerous what they, what they push themselves to do. So, I mean, I don't know if I got this right. I don't know if you're, you know, a scholar on this book, but I saw people mentioning it in your sphere and I thought it was really interesting. I wonder what you think about it. Um, well, first of all, I love Dr. Gordon Neufeld, and I recommend his book um, with Dr. Gabor Mate. And he's also, he doesn't have many other books in English, but he does have some essays online in English, which I highly recommend to people watching your podcast. Um, this is something I think I, at least I could talk about for hours. So I really want to figure out what I want to say and concentrate on it. But um the book's not just good for parents. It's good for anyone to read because we should all, we're all immersed in peer culture, which is a radically new phenomenon. Um, I, we can quibble about when to really date it from, but I would start with the end of World War II, um, the era of the high school and then the, the burgeoning of college. And then this, we're just going down the line and, kindergarten and then kindergarten becomes full day, preschool, um, send your kid to daycare at six weeks. We're a culture of peers right now. We are intensely age segregated. This is true of adults without any children. It's true of, you know, 70 year olds without children or grandchildren. And it's true of our kids and it's affecting all of us. We are losing the barriers between generations. It's why the first thing we talked about is happening, why people don't see children as people. Um, and then children themselves don't see adults as people. They see them as uninteresting. And it's why you can get you know gang formation and teen violence. It's why you have bullying erupt across the scale <laughs> of society. Um, to a, a new phenomenon. I mean, social media takes bullying out of the age of push a nerd in his locker into, you know, bullying people to death. Um, understanding this age segregation, age segregation is so important. It means that we're looking to our peers for self-validation and self-worth. And we're taught to do this from the time we're little kids. And, you know, the grownups think we're doing this to help you socialize. But what you're doing is you're pulling away a child's sense of security and attachment. And that sense of security and attachment gives children the 
space to explore things on their own terms. It gives them room to be curious, to be interested in things without having to worry about what their peers think of it. And when that security is ripped away and a child is put into a classroom of, you know, 25 other kids and then cycled through that with new faces each year and no interaction with older grades or younger grades, what you get are people who are not able to explore their interests, to be curious, to give meaning to things, but who are always watching. They're always watching and looking to make sure that they stay with the pack. And when this happens, this is how we get the cult of credentialism, the cult, uh, and there's obviously, you know, throughout history, there's been all kinds of mob behaviors, but I don't think you have the COVID mania that you get without this intense need to look good in the eyes of your peers, you know, to, to look respectable, this social shaming, um, some people, you can tie it into the longhouse, but the uh, we're all under the eye of the mean girl or the, the biggest bully and what it takes to look good to others. It's obviously children are going to come to an age where they need to be independent, where they need to make relationships on their own. It's not something you have to push your child into. It's not I think there's a part of the book, I think it's the book, where he says, you know, winter's winter. You don't have to push spring to come. It, it comes when they're ready. And it's the same thing with our children. You know, you don't have to push your child to lose their teeth. <laughs> like, <laughs> you have all these developmental jobs where they say, oh, you know, like, your child's not walking by this. They're, they've missed their milestone. Like, there's this push to get them to do things. And sometimes that intervention is needed. Other times it's not. And with socialization, we're all so in this cult and have been for generations that we think, my God, my child won't have any friends. They won't have this. They won't have that. That's secondary. It it will come when it comes. And you want your kid to be friends with the right kids who help them build a sense of self and a capacity to be in relationships that's healthy. You don't want them just fitting in with kids and suppressing themselves in order to just get along. That's there. Maybe there's a time and a place for that, but it's not something we need to be pushing them at all the time. And it's what we're doing. They need anchors. They need a sense of transcendence, something they can look forward to, something they can trust And when they have that healthy trust, that healthy sense of home, then they can start developing themselves and spring will come. Yeah, that's, you know, that's something that's very kind of acutely on my mind now because, um, you know, with the second baby coming, I was very much considering saying, okay, maybe I should, you know, let my toddler go to kind of pre-kindergarten type you know, classes uh, just for, I don't know, a few hours a day because I was thinking, you know, we don't really have that many play dates and he doesn't see other kids. And obviously with that, you know, idea that, you know, he's, he's going to be weird, he's going to be unsocialized <laughs> in my mind. And now, you know, kind of, you know, doing doing research for this uh, conversation kind of 
getting into this fear of hold on to your kids. I'm like, yeah, I'll think about this. <laughs> I don't know, because the idea would be, you know, not to send them to kindergarten right as the baby is very small and then, you know, have him have the feeling that he's being banished to kindergarten uh, because the new baby is here. Uh, yeah, obviously there's all sorts of considerations. No, we we made the decision to send our oldest to pre-K and I think it was great for her. Um, you know, and she was four. So that, I mean, that's a good age to start getting out of the house. But I, I wouldn't recommend it before, really before three. Um, obviously, there, unfortunately, there are so many cases where people have no choice. But then let's talk about the trade-offs and how we compensate for it. You know, if if we were all to start looking at this as a social issue that we can do something about, well, maybe we'll still have to send our kids to daycare, but we can find ways to amend for that, to give parents more time with their children, to for parents to sort of reform their thinking and not think they have to push their children away. Um, if there's one, If there's one big change I could make, it would be to switch our model of schooling you know, we should not have a K through five or K through six. M- middle school shouldn't exist. <laughs> it's a disaster. It's terrible for human beings. If we have to keep smartphones, then we can't keep smartphones in middle schools. One of the two has to go. Um, and smaller fact, like not factory size schools. We keep consolidating. If you send your child to a pre-K, making sure that like maybe they pick out one friend and that, and that you keep playdates with them over the years, or you stay with a program for a long time so that they're not just being recycled through multiple faces. You know, peer culture manifests in so many ways. Um, one of the great things about private school in America is that it gives you a chance to sort of say no to some of the worst parts of it and pick a small K through eight. <laughs> That's... You know, that's off the table in the public schools. But um, I think if the teachers and the administrators were willing to change that model, we could have, you see a lot of people warm up to the idea of public schooling. (laughs) It's it's because it's clearly immersing and doing damage to uh, fragile young people that there's this resistance to it. It's not all, it's not all religious kooks like myself. There's also this very practical, this is unhealthy. Yeah. What, what's your opinion about this, this whole new movement of, of unschooling and the idea that, you know, the school system itself, there's something rotten at its core or it doesn't really do what it's supposed to be doing. It exposes skilled children to, you know, all the perils of, of peer culture and, you know, the fact of being locked into a room for like six to eight hours every morning with, you know, other feral children. And, you know, especially if you take a consideration public school. Um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, this is also something that's starting to look pretty interesting to me now that, you know, just to be confronted with all the, all the issues that you, you see in other, other forms of schooling. I mean, is this something you've considered for your own family or what's, what's your approach with, with education? I have. Um, I would love to do homeschooling. The reason I'm a big advocate of it when it's appropriate. Um, at the moment, for me, it's in a cycle of nursing and pregnancy. I am not, and small children, I am not capable of doing that on top of everything else. 
Um, yeah, but I, I'm, I'm, I'm just a parenthesis. I meant unschooling, essentially, oh. literally not doing yeah. it. <laughs> that very, it's very interesting to me. I think a lot of that depends upon the environment you can provide. Now, if I had a farm, <laughs> that might be what I would want to do. I don't. So, so in that context, when my kids can't roam to the same ability, I don't. Not sure unschooling would work here. I do think it's a very interesting and necessary corrective to the complete ossification and deadening of education. Education is no longer about relationships. And that, I mean, education is, but what's happening in schools is not necessarily education. It's indoctrination. It's, um, you know, it's catechesis, catechesis in the administrative state, in the abstract model oriented build your resume, go into debt. It's, it's, that's what it's there for. It's not a place that is growing minds or hearts. It's not a place that is allowing human beings to develop the capacity to enter into relationship with the world. And unschooling can do that. It doesn't mean every unschooling parent is going to, but it's certainly, it's probably a better uh, a better a better way to raise geniuses. <laughs> I'm not saying that's my goal, but there was a piece recently, I don't know if you saw it, um, from the man, it was on Substack. He, he spent a year studying the education, the childhood educations of different geniuses and came to the conclusion that, you know, aristocratic mentoring, govern, like teaching, was the foundation of being able to create later in life. That people like Bertrand Russell and Virginia Woolf had basically had unschooling until they had a, a govern, governess or a special teacher who was then able to draw out the best potentials in the children and give them the proper works to read. And if, if you're familiar with C.S. Lewis's education, he was really suffocating at his school. And then he was sent to um, you know, get an individual one-on-one education with Mr. Kirk, uh, this professor, and he, he blossomed. And our schools kill, they, they kill relationships. And if unschooling is a place where you can have those, again, then that's, <laughs> you know, there's going to be a lot of uphill, there's going to be trade-offs, you know, things that your kid does miss out on in a society where so many other children are having the schooling experience. But there's also an incredible potential there for a child to see the world through their own eyes and to have someone who cares about them encourage that spark. And that's very precious right now. Yes, it is. I'm I'm just, uh, what was that interesting to me about just reading about unschooling? I didn't know much about it until very recently is that um, it, it very well reflects my experience growing up where I just essentially felt warehoused in school and literally every bit of important information that I've ever learned, I've learned doing self-study in my own time. If I could spare, you know, the exhaustion of, you know, being warehoused for eight hours with, 
you know, people that I didn't necessarily have a lot in common with, you know, people were at different levels. In Romania, there is a, an interesting kind of um, relic from communist times. It's, uh, we don't really have special, I don't know, excellence classes or whatever. Um, everyone's in, in the same class, but you have the Olympics program. So uh, the teacher would kind of just pick you out if you're good at a certain subject and then offer you, okay, you can come and we can tutor you for the Olympics. And then you'd be in a small class with like two or three other kids who were going to the Olympics. And they would just, you know, you would just get in the college level material and you just learn from college manuals, you know, so you could win at whatever you know, regional competition. And that was probably the the, the places where I, I learned the most because I was, was really interested in biology and I had this amazing biology teacher. Everyone else hated him because he was like super old and kind of a crusty old school type <laughs> guy he was speaking slowly and he was just we're falling asleep at his class. But I was just like <laughs> completely immersed in everything he was saying because he just had this. He had a, a, the temperament of a naturalist. He was very curious. He knew how to kind of describe phenomena in, in this brilliant detail, like, you know, kind of, um, yeah, just, you know, almost like a Carl Sagan type person. Okay. Which, yeah. Um, I'm sorry. No, no, that, is, that sounds great. I'm sorry. Yeah, no, no, uh, absolutely. I mean, he was, yeah, just, just wonderful. Um, he was also like, he was retired and he was, you know, coming out of retirement to teach the kids in this particular oh. school. And yeah, I mean, he was making a sacrifice and no one was appreciating it but me, <laughs> but it was, it was really awesome. And it was kind of having this feeling of having, you know, one interest, one tutor, you know, I learned a lot about a lot of other fields while I was doing my deep dives and, you know, learning out of college manuals to, you know, to learn about whatever more specific details of, of biology and chemistry that I was interested in. Um, and the whole experience itself is super educational. Um, and I remember a lot of what I learned then because it was interesting to me, but I, you know, what else do I remember from, you know, the first years of high school? Not much. Um, it's, I don't know, that's, that's kind of why it was very um, engaging to me to read about unschooling. because I was like, yes, that would have been awesome. <laughs> I, I'm one of those people, Alex, too, where I, I hated school. I, I asked my children every day, did you like it? You know, cause if you don't, you don't have to go. <laughs> I think that's, it's important to check in with them all the time. Um, no, that's that, that one teacher you can have, I had a crusty teacher also. That's why I was loving her story who, was mean and curmudgeonly and other people did not like him. And I was like, this, this is the guy, this is the <laughs> best. Like I, he was me. He's a little mean too. I was like, I love it. Like he's the first person to make me work. He, nobody's made me work in years. You know, finally someone's saying you can do better than that. And I'm like, oh, okay, like, let's, let's give it a try. Um, and that's, it's that one relationship, but it shows you that like most of what we get in school is not that relationship. And I know there's a lot of hardworking teachers who mean really well and who are trying their best in a system that is increasingly dehumanized, but that doesn't mean we need to keep doing it <laughs> just because people mean well doesn't mean it's working. Yeah. And I'm, I'm hopeful because a lot of new formats are coming up now. Um, yeah. A lot of people having, you know, I think, you know, as long as, you can get some form of accreditation somewhere for, for these types of education. It's good. And I feel like, you know, people are, are doing their darndest to, to, to make sure of that. 
Um, yeah, I, I'm curious what's going to come up. I mean, we still have a little bit of time until, you know, proper education starts for our son, but I'll be, you know, reading up on all the, all the materials and all the options up until then, and we'll see what we can do. Um, but yeah, I mean, we're, we're coming, slowly coming up on time. So I want to ask you the last question, the question of the show, the subversive thinker question. Um, do you have someone that you would recommend as an underrated or maybe someone who's been influential in, in your world? Um, recommendation for for listeners? Well, you've already mentioned Dr. Gordon Neufeld, so I'll go with my second one, which is um, I finally read uh, Dr. Carl Stern's book, Flight from Woman, a few months ago. And I had seen a few people talk about it online, but not many. And I think it's one of the great synopses of what it means to be a woman in this time. And with that as a caveat, um, it's a lot about men. <laughs> it's, it's the biographies of a lot of men, but I found it uh, a very beautiful read and I would really recommend it to anyone right now. Excellent. Yeah, no, I've, I hadn't heard of this book. Yeah, that's that's great. It, it's about um, six years old, so but it's still very timely. Okay, that's, that's excellent. Um, yeah, I mean, this was really lovely. Um, thank you for, for coming on. Thank you for sharing your wisdom. Um, thank you for continuing to write, publish, and, and post your thoughts out there. Um, and I want to let people know that you are at Tara and uh, Thiek on, uh, on Facebook, uh, on Facebook, on Twitter. <laughs> and uh, yeah, you write in different outlets. And uh, I guess that's, is that the best place for people to find your work? Oh, yeah. Okay, perfect, perfect. Uh, well, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you for having me.